0: You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. So my name's Caleb, uh, like I said at the top, and this morning I want to talk to you all a little bit about unity and you know, coming together. And I was thinking a lot about unity and what really would display unity really well. And I was thinking back to a year ago at the very beginning of COVID, when kind of lockdown started to come into place, there was this general feeling that we should come together, that we should, everyone do their part and we will beat this thing. Uh, we will unite as one world and we're gonna, we're gonna conquer the pandemic. And there was this general feeling of this trust that we had in one another that we trusted that every that my neighbor was going to do their part and we had this incredible love and support for our frontline workers we wanted to support our healthcare workers our first responders our essential people that you know the amazon drivers who kept bringing you groceries and all those things and then as time went on the unity kind of eroded there was a level of loss of trust we stopped kind of trusting one another to do their part because people were getting a little tired of being inside. People were over the masks. People were ready to get back to their lives. They stopped putting other people before their own needs. They wanted to love themselves more than love each other because we wanted to get on with our lives. And those of us that weren't high risk were like, let's just get on with it. We don't need the mask. We don't need to stay in. And the, the, the illusion of unity that the world had really, really shattered when the vaccines started to be administered. It wasn't America, this great bastion of vaccine production will help the poorer nations. It was America first. Everyone get your shots. We need to be taken care of. And those other guys those other guys. It's this interesting thing that unity is everyone in the world wanted it. Everyone desires unity. We all want to unite for something and achieve a goal greater than ourselves. But when we look for it, we can't find it. It seems to be elusive. And this morning, I actually want to talk about the unity that Christ offers us, the unity that we have as his church. And what does that unity look like? Is it just as fleeting as what we look for in the world, or is it something more solid that stays together no matter what? So if you would turn with me uh, to the book of Ephesians. We've been going through, as a church, uh, the Ephesians book, and we've been talking about Christ's vision for the church, what he thinks it should look like. And unity is a big part of that. So Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be in first one. I'll have it up on the screen as well if you uh, fancy. I'll try not to block it out. So I'll stand over here. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in all. You might want to keep your thumb in your Bibles. We're going to be coming back to that quite a bit. Now, that's a lot to take in in just a few short sentences, but I want to start with this right at the top. The very first thing Paul says is, To lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that's a very, it sounds like a very Christianese sentence to us uh, in the 21st century. Uh, There's a lot of misunderstanding. What does he mean by calling? I'm sure that's what you're asking right now. That's what my first question was, is what is calling? And Paul actually addresses what this calling is earlier in this letter. Clint talked about it a few weeks ago, about what what is it that we've been called to? And I'm actually going to read again from the book of Ephesians, a little, just a little bit before, in chapter 2, verse 15. He says that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting de- to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. Christ has come and called us to be a new humanity. That's crazy. A new way of being a person. A new way to live your life. And Paul, the people that he's talking about, those two groups, Clint talked about it more in depth. I'm just gonna briefly cover it here. Those two groups, that divide, that Jesus comes to reconcile, is not like he's a Lakers fan and they're Suns fans and like we really should come together. It's like, it's like slave, owners and slaves, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's deep, it's racial divide, it's, it's, it's religious divide, it's, it's Christian and Muslim, it's, um, it's this connection of people, that these divisions no longer separate us because Christ has come and through his death on the cross has ended the hostility between us, that in Christ, these divisions erode away, and so he unites us and that as we live our lives these divisions should no longer be prevalent to us that we should live the same way that we should be in a cult, like that we should the two have been made one into the holy spirit that's the calling that we've been called to Jesus has removed all of our political affiliations the racial divide our thanksgiving traditions our nba team choice we have been called to be united together as christians and then the next thought that struck me after I realized that Christ has done something in me, he's done something amazing, is I felt like actually he hasn't. I had this feeling of, if he's put to death this hostility towards other people, why do I still feel hostility? In me, I still feel a level of, of hostility towards other Christians, towards other people, and an example here, and it's going to be a silly one, and I, but it's a, an example nonetheless, is when I watch a Suns game, that hostility has never been more prevalent in my life than when I'm watching the Suns game. I want the Suns to win, and I don't care if we're play- who we're playing. They are the worst people in the world to me at that moment. I want to crush them. I don't like their fans. I don't like any of the and they're people. These are- this is ridiculous. Like, if you've ever watched a game with me, you've probably been like, whoa, chill, man. It's just a game. And you're absolutely right, it is just a game and it actually doesn't affect my life whatsoever. But as I watch the Suns game and I realize something, if I have hostility over something that doesn't even matter, you can bet I still feel hostility in other areas of my life towards things that actually matter. And maybe, but maybe that's just me. I'm sure all of you have none of those feelings. You never feel that way when someone disagrees with you. When somebody who holds the opposite position makes an argument that you kind of feel a little bit swayed by, but you're like, no way, I'm going to lock down my defense and I will not listen to this. You know, and <laughs> this, the point is we still have divisions in us. We still feel that divide. Even in our, in our small church here, there's a level of division. So how are we supposed to be worthy of that? How can we be worthy of the unity that Christ has created in us? How are we to live? I thought, Christ got rid of all these divisions, so how come I'm still struggling? Am I to rise to the occasion to be worthy, like, like a young Arthur pulling the, the sword from the stone, I'm the chosen one, now make me king, Camelot, run to rule No. Because worthy is not just this, this intrinsic quality that we, that we kind of build up in ourselves, and then we're like, yeah, now we're worthy. And... We rise to the occasion. You see, the thing about worthy is where the word originated from actually had to do with weight. It came with scales. And I have a little scale here. This is how they used to measure things. I'm pretty confident of that. They had scales more, that looked something like this. Not exactly like this. This is just something that sits on a lawyer's desk, full disclosure. But this is, this is a, they had scales that would function something like this. You, in order to weigh something, it had to be weighed against something else that would show you whether it was worthy. So to be worthy was to have equal weight. And I was, um, I came across this as I was listening to a a Welsh preacher in the 20th century named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he said something that I really liked, and I think it really applies well here to this passage, is that if we are to live a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called, worthy is to be, is to place equal weight on both truth and love, on the scales. You have to have a certain amount of truth and the equal amount of love. And that creates a worthiness to it. If you place too much emphasis on truth, you become harsh. If you place too much emphasis on love, you realize that truth, you, you devalue truth and that it doesn't actually matter what we're united to. And so the unity crumbles. So what is the truth that we are to place weight upon? What is the truth that we are? Believing in that we're uniting around. And that starts in verse 4. And I'm going to read verse 4 again, just because I like to read the Bible. Verse 4 starts with this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. That's a lot of ones. Seven ones. Phone number if you want it. And so these, the thing about these ones is these aren't random ones. Paul didn't just kind of say these ones sound fun. But these ones actually form the foundation of what Christians believe. And the thing about these ones is actually I'm going to stand over here. And I'm, could you throw this up on the slide? These ones, three of the ones have to do with the person in the Trinity of God. The one spirit. It's going to be the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit. One Lord. That's Jesus Christ. God the Son. And one God and Father of all. God the Father. We believe as Christians that God is three persons existing in one. That they are co-equal and co-eternal. It's this profound mystery that our faith rests upon. And we see in the Trinity, this beautiful unity. This unity that that takes place from the before time began and will carry on after time ends is that they function together in this harmony that is amazing. There's this amount of trust. And love there that we want to ba- that we want to find. And so, the next four ones—not the next four ones, but the four one, there are another, the other four ones because this is not exactly in order—have to do with how we as Christians re- relate to the persons of God and the members of the Trinity. You see, we are one body united by one spirit. We have one hope of our calling, one faith and one baptism, because we have one Lord Jesus Christ. Each of these have to do with the person of Jesus. It is in Jesus Christ that we have believed our faith for our salvation in his death and resurrection. It is through baptism that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And it is our one hope that Christ will return again to judge the living and the dead. And we have one God who is above all and through all and in all. That he is not his abstract king, but that he's our dad. That we relate to him as sons and daughters. And that actually here in this room, we're, we're brothers and sisters. That it's a family. You see, these seven ones form the foundation of our truth. And without, these, without this truth, there's nothing that unites us. There's nothing that draws us together if it's not for these seven ones and the person of Jesus Christ Christ and God the Father, and God the Spirit. That's a lot of weight on truth to form the foundation of a unity. So how are we to equal that truth with our love? How much weight should we be putting on love? And how should this affect the way we love one another? See, I'm, I'm pretty young, but, I'm, but maybe some of you remember better than me, this amazing 90s Christian rock band DC Talk. And they have a song, and it's called Love is a Verb. And they tell me that you, in order to love someone you have to do something. The dictionary will also tell you that love is a verb, but DC talk is more catchy. So, so how does our truth affect our action? If we want to be worthy of our new humanity, how should we love? How should we act? And now we're going to get back in the Bible again. I hope you kept your thumbs there, we're, we're in it a lot. Let, let, let's look back at verse 2. And in these verses you're going to see four qualities that we should hope to embody. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And that ends in the middle of a sentence, and that's okay because we'll come to that sentence later. These four things, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, in love. Something about these you may have noticed is a a lot of them have to do with how we relate to one another. How we interact with one another. These are qualities you'd like to have in a good friend. You know, you're drawn to a humble person who treats you as an equal or even a greater than. Treats you with respect and dignity. You all know what it's like to deal with arrogant, bravado people. It's tough. It's really hard. You don't really enjoy that. That's a difficult thing to interact with. And then he speaks about gentleness. And when he says gentleness, I don't want you to think weakness. Do not mix up the two. To have a softness about us. To not be harsh when we share the truth with one another. To be building up each other with a kind word. Now, patience. Patience is difficult. To be honest, I struggle with really all four of these if uh, you put my coals to the fire. But patience is like, can we just do it now? Everything in my life can happen now. Amazon can deliver me a package in three hours now. I can look up anything I want on my phone right now. I can drive and get fast food right now. Right now. And, but we have to be patient. Because when we work, and we have to be patient with one another. So when someone makes a mistake, we're patient with them. We don't jump on them and say, how could you? Get it right, right now. I'll tell you a quick story. Is, uh, yesterday, I was coming down from Flagstaff with a group of friends. And my, my patience was absolutely tested. If you don't know, on the, the I-17 on the way home yesterday was completely closed for two hours, completely closed. So that means on the way to the closure, there was traffic that kind of crawled along at a snail's pace until eventually, the car was just parked for two hours and on the I-17 with a bunch of people that, and one car kind of cramped. And, you kind of lose your patience. You really want to just, you want to get moving. You want to get home, you're hungry, you want to use the bathroom. There's a lot of things happening in that time, but the patience was tested. And the only reason I think we made it through it is because we wanted to, we we prayed actually. We prayed that the Lord would give us patience and that the Lord would enable us to bear with one another. And now I think you, you might start to see a little bit about these qualities is actually these qualities form a bit of a harmony In that it's, it's easier to be patient when you are humble and gentle and it's easier to be humble and gentle when you're patient. And this leads us into bearing with one another in love. And this one probably hits me on the most personal note because I am unbearable. I know that I'm unbearable. Maybe you guys are learning right now I'm a bit unbearable, as you bear with this sermon. And and there's one story in particular that really strikes me about my unbearability. I was in college, so imagine me eight years ago. Times that by eight, my unbearableness. So I, I am going to dinner with a group of friends. There's like 16 people going to dinner. And I'm going to carpool with some friends. And one person, who probably doesn't even need to sit next to me at dinner, Sees me and goes, whoa, whoa, whoa! This is kind of like a our dorm thing. Like this isn't like for everybody. Like we're all just gonna go do birthday, just us. Not really a veiled shot at I don't want you here, just a I don't like you. And to be honest, that hurt. (laughs) That hurts to say when somebody looks you in the eyes and say I don't like you. Sorry, Tom, you're just there. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I like you. And so, but then this amazing thing happened. Is the other two guys I was carpooling with heard that? Saw my face, and they didn't go get him out of here. They went, no, 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 no. Like, you're welcome here. You, you absolutely can come in the car with us. Yeah, you're gonna be a little loud and annoying and talkative, and then you can come and you can eat dinner with us and share a meal with us and we'll sit with you, and yeah, you'll still be loud and annoying and talkative, but we want to be with you. We want to welcome you here. This is we want to welcome you in to this community. That's bearing with one another in love. Not when it's easy. I can, like, it's like if I say I bear with my wife in love. It's, it's very easy for me to be with my wife. She's wonderful to be with. I've married her. I want to spend the rest of my life with her. It's an entirely difficult thing when you, when you say, I actually have a hard time hanging out with this person, conversating with this person, to say, I want to bear with you in love. And then to, and then to be there for that person when life gets hard. When challenges come their way, when they're on the down and outs, to then say, I want to stand by you through this. I want to love you through this. I want to be patient with you. I want to be humble with you. I want to be gentle with you. And then there's this word right at the end, kind of like the secret fifth quality in this verse. It's this word love, that we bear with one another in love. And there's something significant that Paul is communicating with this word, and uh, we would miss it because we, the English language is actually kind of lame. You see, English, we have one word to describe how we love something. I love the sons, I love Doritos, I love my wife. Those are three different levels of love, but by great amounts. But the Greek language doesn't necessarily struggle with that problem in the same way. They have different words for the word love. And the word here is agape. And this communicates a type of love that's really difficult for us to describe in the English language. It's it's like this this deep, self-giving love. And I found this this, uh, definition, oh, it's up here on the screen, from Joseph H. Thayer that I really, really liked, and I wanted to share it with you. It is love going forth from your soul and taking up its abode, as it were, in ours. It's It's a love that goes out from deep within you to somebody else to make a home to make a place where, where you're welcome. And I'm sure you homeowners in here, homes, actually, there's a lot of effort that goes into homes. You have to, you know, the plumbing needs to be fixed, and the roofing, and the AC goes out, and then the, the yard work, and this. You want to love someone so much that it's not even your home that you're loving. You want to care for them so deeply <laughs> that it's worth it. And it's, it's this type of love, this type of deep soul-giving love that enables us to embody the four other, other four traits that found in verse 2. And the thing about it is you actually can't do it on your own. That's the type of love that you can't just kind of muster up and like will into life. That's the type of love that you need to get from the one spirit. It comes from our unity together. That comes from being bound together in the spirit and one body. And so what I'm saying is our truth dictates how we are to love, but in order to truly love, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And that introduces attention. I'm telling you to do something you can't do. So how are we to do it? If we're to be worthy of the calling, we have to be, the Holy Spirit needs to unite us. And verse 3 makes this problem really apparent. I'll read it for you now. It might be on the screen behind me as well. Picking up in the rest of the sentence, he says, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Catch the problem? Making every effort. What? How is my effort going to maintain the unity of the Spirit? It's God, right? He's going to make a bond a whole heck of a lot better than I can. It's supposed to be, it's it's a bond that's, Unbreakable. So the unity of the spirit would imply that the unity is unable to be broken. Yet we look out at the world, and we see disunity across so many churches, across this room. So how are we to reconcile these two things? If God's unity is unbreakable, but when we look out, we see a divided church. One commentator puts it like this I have it on the slide. It's very long. But John Stott, an uh, English preacher, again, from the 20th century. He writes this, it is between the church's unity as an invisible reality present to the mind of God, who says to himself, I have only one church, and the church's disunity as a visible appearance, which contradicts the invisible reality, causing us to say to ourselves, there are hundreds of separate and competing churches. We are one, for God says so. And in interdenominational conventions and congresses, we sense our underlying unity in Christ, yet outwardly. And visibly, we belong to different churches and different traditions, some of which are not even in communion with one another, while others have strayed far from biblical Christianity. So, what's being said here is that the true unity of the church actually takes place in God. It exists as an invisible reality in God himself, one that we cannot see, because what we see when we look out is division. And that sounds a little bit difficult for us to accept. I think... We say we're united as one body in Jesus, and that's maybe a little bit interested. but what we see in a visible reality is there's like 25 of us right here with all our own bodies. There's not one body right here. But that reality exists in God. And what might actually be helpful is, is these glasses. When I take them off, my eyes really hurt. And my whole life, I never needed these. I never thought I needed these. I went through and the world I saw I believed to be reality and then a few weeks ago someone said to me what you're seeing isn't true the truth you're actually not seeing reality for what it is you need something to help you see that and so I put and when I put them on I see you all much more clearly I see things much more clearly and so for us to see the unity of the church we need to put on some glasses. You see this series is called Christ's vision, right? So we need to put on some Christ lenses to see the unity that exists between us. And when you see people through Christ, you realize it's much easier to be humble, patient, gentle and to bear with one another. So our disunity comes in the form of what we can see. And so the effort we make is to maintain. It's to the effort we make is in the desire to be a reflection of that invisible reality in our present one. So when, so as Christians we're united to another by one spirit, an unbreakable unity. Even if we say that the unity is broken, it doesn't actually mean that it is, because that unity exists in God. And what makes this unity so unique and so incredible is that it welcomes everybody in. This unity doesn't allow for cliques and factions and racial divides and demographic sections because we've been brought together into one body to be a new humanity. But we unite together for a goal, right? And that's something I've I've yet to address. Why are we uniting? What purpose to what end? And I'm glad I don't have to answer this question because Paul answers it for me. So we're gonna go back to Ephesians chapter four. And we're going to jump down to verses 14 through 16. Paul says, We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped as, every, as each part is working properly promotes the body's growth and building itself up in love. And yes, the love there is still agape. When we're worthy of the calling, we discover that we can no longer be divided. When we have the equal weight on truth and love. We aren't children who are easily tricked. We know what the truth is and we won't be swayed by fast talkers and cunning liars. Our unity will not be crumbled our love and trust will not be compromised. And it's in these verses that we discover where our growth comes from. See, we're united by the spirit, but actually we grow because of Christ, who is our head of our one body. He is what causes us to grow. He shows us how to live a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called. You see, we read stories about him and you hear us talk about him a lot. Is he, he placed equal weight on both truth and love. And so we strive to grow up into him. For the body to grow, the body's got to eat. And not individually. This is not about an individual growth, but this is about growing together as one body. And so we must spend time learning from Jesus, reading his teachings, reading the way he lived his life. We have to spend time praying, spend time reading the Bible, spend time in community together on a Sunday morning. It's time to eat. And there's this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer that I'd really like to share with you, and I think it really demonstrates just very strongly how we learn from Jesus and how he teaches us to grow. When God was merciful, when he revealed Jesus Christ to us as our brother, when he won our hearts by his love, this was the beginning of our instructing in divine love. When God was merciful to us, we learned to be merciful with our brethren. When we received forgiveness instead of judgment, we too were made ready to forgive our brethren. What God did to us, we then owed to others. The more we received, the more we were able to give, and the more meager our brotherly love, the less we were living by God's mercy and love. Thus God himself has taught us to meet one another as God has met us in Christ. It's that last line. As God has met us in Christ. That's how we're to meet one another. And the way God has met us in Christ is from a very, very low place. Humble. He met us in a very, very gentle way by being a servant. And he was incredibly patient with us, and he still is. And he bears with us in all things because of his great love for us, because he is the example of that self-giving, self-sacrificing make his home in you type of love (laughs) yeah and when we live like that empowered by jesus empowered by the holy spirit we we become worthy of the calling one last story because i can't resist Um, and I'll, i'll close after that it's this uh this is about a baseball player named Willie Stargell, And he played for the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1979. And he was nicknamed Pops because of his leadership on and off the baseball field for that team. And they, the Pirates won the World Series in 1979 and the team was nicknamed The Family because of their connections and relationships with one another and they asked Stargell about the team, and this is what he had to say. We won, we lived, and we enjoyed as one. We molded together dozens of different individuals into one working force. We were products of different races. We were raised in different income brackets, but in the clubhouse and on the field, we were one. In here, we're one, because Christ has said so. We grow as one because we're one body, each ligament working together. See, everybody, guys, is looking for unity. Everybody's looking out there. And they are just going to find something fleeting. But in here, you're going to find it solidly in Christ. Because it's one body, united by one spirit, through one faith, one baptism, one hope in our Lord, under one God and Father of all.